this is, I think, one of the most ripe areas to talk about how your constitutional rights just apply differently once you raise your right hand and you, you swear an oath and you join the military. There is absolutely a difference with First Amendment freedoms. Your freedom of religion, your freedom of speech, your freedom of expression, your freedom of association, your freedom of assembly uh, are all abridged uh, when you raise your right hand and you join the military. Welcome to the second in the series of the Bill of Rights and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I'm your host, Michael Sears, from the Stockdale Center at the United States Naval Academy. We started this episode with the intro from the movie Footloose. Why, you ask? Well, we're talking about free expression. You're right, codified in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution to talk, sing, publish, pray, assemble, complain, and even dance. By the time we're finished, you'll know your rights. Let's get started. Peter Zinger was born in 1697 in an area of Western Germany. His father was a school teacher. The Zinger family immigrated to New York in 1710. By 1733, Zinger had become a printer in New York. He printed copies of newspapers to voice his disagreement with the actions of the newly appointed colonial governor, William Cosby. On his arrival in New York City, Cosby had plunged into a rancorous quarrel with the Council of the Colony over salary. Supported by members of the popular party, Zinger's New York Weekly Journal continued to publish articles critical of the royal governor. Finally, Cosby issued a proclamation condemning the newspaper. Zinger was charged with libel and imprisoned. After more than eight months in prison, Zinger went to trial. For its time, the case was now a cause celeb. With public interest at a fever pitch, Zinger's lawyer pleaded his client's case directly to the jury. After the lawyers for both sides finished their arguments, the jury retired, only to return in 10 minutes with a verdict of not guilty. With this case, a precedent was established in the colonies that a statement, even if defamatory, was not libelous if it could be proved, thus affirming freedom of the press in America. This case was considered as one of the groundwork principles of freedom of the press. During World War II, the Liberty ship SS Peter Zinger was named in his honor. Today's second episode of this series is called Freedom of Expression, and we deeply dive into the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. First Amendment. In Episode 3, we will focus on religion, but today we focus on the four other freedoms guaranteed in the First Amendment, press, petition, assembly, and speech. How are we to understand these freedoms, both as citizens and naval officers? What limitations exist to those guaranteed rights? 
Why is it okay to burn a flag or wear a black armband protesting war in public schools? When does the government have the right to infringe upon those rights? Do they ever? And how are we supposed to understand freedom of expression in the digital age of Instagram and Facebook? Join us as we break down the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, the freedom of expression it guarantees, as we understand how its meaning has shifted over time and where its future lies. Freedom of speech is considered a fundamentally sacred value by all American citizens and one that is touted regularly in the public square. But freedom of speech, along with petition, assembly, and press, has limitations. How can we understand the larger scope of the freedom of expression for United States citizens? And what are some of the obvious limitations? I'm David Luban. I'm a professor of law and philosophy at Georgetown University Law Center. And I also have the uh, honor and privilege of being the distinguished chair in ethics at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You know, one thing I can say is that um, the United States has the most permissive free speech of any country in the world. Um, And that is because of the constitutional guarantee of free speech. So it means that uh, um, uh, hateful political speech, hate speech is allowed here. It isn't allowed everywhere. Uh, Holocaust denial uh, is illegal in some countries. Um, it's not illegal here. Um, th- so what kind of limitations are there on freedom of speech? The classic formula is that uh, you, you don't have free speech if it means shouting fire in a crowded theater where people will stampede and get killed. Uh, you don't have free speech to directly incite a crime. But do you have free speech to come really close to threatening? Uh, The answer is yes. There was a a case from just less than a decade ago in which uh, um, somebody went into some rants on his Facebook page in which he threatened to to kill his ex-wife. He threatened to shoot up a kindergarten. Uh, He said that he'd been interviewed by an FBI and he was having fantasies about, as he put it, slitting the throat of the little FBI lady. And so he was uh, charged with uh, crimes of threatening people. And he said, oh, no, no, I wasn't really threatening. I was just kind of uh, working off my rage uh, in a Facebook rant. And uh, um, you know, he got away with it. My name is Jeff Kossif, and I'm an assistant professor in the cyber science department at the U.S. Naval Academy. So there are certain categories of speech that the Supreme Court has ruled are categorically not protected by the First Amendment. So this would be things like obscenity. It's actually now a very high bar for something to qualify as obscenity. But if it does, that's not going to be protected by the First Amendment. Child pornography is not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, True threats are not protected by the First Amendment. Defamation is not protected by the First Amendment, provided that the material qualifies as defamatory. Now, the Supreme Court over the past 50 years has set the bar really high for defamation, particularly if the plaintiff is a public official or public figure, uh, that they have to demonstrate uh, actual malice. 
which is knowledge of uh, falsity or reckless disregard of whether the material is false. But if it does qualify as defamatory, uh, then that person can that then that website or the speaker can be subject to very severe court penalties. These limitations make logical sense. Regarding solely freedom of speech, the government does have the right to infringe on an individual's speech or to hold them accountable if it can bring imminent harm and injury to fellow citizens. The same holds true for assembly. How does this dynamic work with the freedom of press? Well, I think that they're, I think they're co-equal things. Um, at least in the Constitution, they are. Um, it, the First Amendment says that you, Congress can't make laws abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. And it doesn't say that one's more important than the other. It might be that uh, suppression of uh, free press was a bigger deal because uh, the you know the press has a bigger audience and it has more of an impact and it's more intimately involved in public affairs than most individuals' speech. To understand our First Amendment, we turn to the defining court cases throughout our country's history to understand how the First Amendment has evolved, changed, and shaped our lives as citizens today. The key to understanding the First Amendment of the United States is to understand the government does not have the right to restrict an individual's ability to express and speak. During the tumultuous 19th century, the government of the United States generally didn't prevent a citizen from saying anything. Nobody sued the federal government in defense of freedom of speech because the government had not taken its rights away. This changed in the early 20th century. In the Debs case, Debs versus the United States, Eugene Debs was arrested and sentenced to 10 years in prison after a unanimous Supreme Court found Debs guilty under the Sedition Act for giving a public speech in the summer of 1918 in Canton, Ohio, arguing against the U.S. participation in World War I. But less than 40 years later, the climate and the attitude towards free speech had shifted dramatically. Chief Justice Earl Warren and his court heard the case of Tinker v. Des Moines in 1969. In 1965, Mary Beth Tinker and some of her classmates wore black armbands to school to protest the U.S. participation in the Vietnam War. Their public school promptly suspended them. Tinker won a decisive victory four years later when the Warren court voted 7-2 that students do not shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. Tinker and her classmates earned the right to pure speech, symbolic protest, and the right to voice peaceful dissent. How else can we understand the First Amendment's evolution in light of the law? I'm Lieutenant Commander Liz Jarzik, JAG Corps, United States Navy. I'm an assistant professor of military law in the Leadership, Education, and Development Division. I'm also the law section head here at the United States Naval Academy. This is, I think, one of the most ripe areas to talk about how your constitutional rights just apply differently once you raise your right hand and you, you swear an oath and you join the military. So there's a really famous case out there from 1971 called Cohen versus California. And in that case, Mr. Cohen goes to a courthouse and he's wearing a jacket that says F the draft. It doesn't really say F, right? It spells it out. And he's a arrested for disorderly conduct. And he challenged that arrest and prosecution on First Amendment grounds, saying, hey, I'm protesting the Vietnam War, and I should be able to say this. 
And the Supreme Court agreed. They said, yeah, despite the fact that, you know, he dropped an F-bomb uh, and it was a little bit vulgar, political speech is just at the heart of the First Amendment. We care about it more than almost anything else. So we are going to just treat it as absolutely sacred. And Mr. Cohen had the right to say that. But if these are the cases that define expressions evolution in the eyes of the court, what are some of the misconceptions that remain? The right to free speech and free expression has obvious restrictions. But a fundamental misunderstanding can be common. The role of the First Amendment when considering a private company versus a public employer. The government, despite the exceptions we've discussed, cannot infringe a private citizen's right to freedom of speech. A private company, however, is a vastly different situation. Uh, I think that that's a it's a fascinating question, and uh, when you think about it, a corporation is a completely artificial legal entity. There was a famous British jurist who once said, "You know, a corporation has no soul to damn and no body to kick, so you can't punish a corporation." But corporations do have some constitutional rights, and the fighting has been about uh, which which rights they have. Citizens United said that they have a right of political speech. Uh, what other rights does a corporation have? Uh, the, um, the federal code of laws, when it defines the word person, says that persons include corporations, artificial persons. So does that mean that every single law that applies to persons. Uh, you could say the same thing about corporations. That could lead to some pretty weird results. There was a one of my favorite cases was one where a, a judge sentenced a Pepsi-Cola bottling plant to two years in prison. Uh, well, because the law, I mean, the, the, there was a corporate crime committed and uh, uh, the only sentence that was available was prison. Fortunately, the judge just suspended the sentence because otherwise it would have been an interesting job for the U.S. Marshal about how you put a Pepsi-Cola plant in prison. Uh, it doesn't open much of a Pandora's box. It says that corporations have free speech rights. It doesn't say anything about any of their other rights, and that'll be settled right by right. So the Supreme Court has said that a corporation doesn't have a right against self-incrimination. Only a natural human has that. But a corporation does have free speech rights. Uh, does a, you know, what other rights does it have that'll be settled right by right? Under the Bill of Rights, there is no problem with a private institution limiting somebody's speech. I mean, I go to work. I can, uh, you know, they can tell me to sign a contract saying that uh, our in the workplace, uh, um, I don't get to say anything that I want. Everything that we've discussed so far ignores the advent of the digital age. To provide even more granularity, the digital age has ignited a debate about the understanding of the rights guaranteed in the First Amendment and how they apply to the world of social media. What does it mean when Facebook or Twitter flag or remove an individual's content? Are they allowed to do so? How does the First Amendment apply to social media? So the First Amendment applies on social media just as it would apply offline, as it would apply in newspapers, as it would apply in a public park, in that the government is restricted in its ability to prohibit people from speaking. Now, the way that the First Amendment 
at least so far, does not apply on social media is that social media companies are not bound by the First Amendment just as government entities are. So, for example, uh, if a city council were to pass a law prohibiting a certain person or a certain group from speaking, that would raise serious First Amendment concerns. If Facebook or Twitter were to pass some sort of rule or some sort of uh, terms of service or user policies saying we don't want this particular type of speech, the First Amendment doesn't restrict Facebook or Twitter's decision to do that. They still might be restricting speech, but an important aspect of the First Amendment is something known as the state action doctrine, which means that the First Amendment, and it's not just unique to the First Amendment, this also applies to the Fourth Amendment and other rights under the Constitution, is that it restricts the government's actions and private parties, such as social media companies, have much more leeway to determine what sort of speech they allow on their platforms. Facebook and the New York Times both are outlets for speech. The difference between Facebook and the New York Times is that in the New York Times, just by design, it only allows a very limited number of speakers. Uh, Yes, you might write a letter to the editor of the New York Times, but it's very unlikely that that letter will be published just because they get so many submissions. For Facebook, the opposite is true. Facebook uh, billions of people can speak on Facebook and there's not the same limit. And what the Supreme Court has recognized dating back to 1997 is that the internet is different in that it allows this unparalleled ability for every person to effectively have their own printing press. So what you're saying is, as a result, social media companies can restrict what we believe to be free speech. So section 230 uh, basically says that if you're a platform, you are not, uh, unless an exception applies, you are not liable both for what you allow users to post on your site and what you remove from users' postings. And Uh, So Section 230 has allowed the modern internet in the United States to develop with business models that are centered around user-generated content. So uh, while previous media like television stations, newspapers were very much focused on one-way communication, so media uh, content that the companies produced for their viewers, for their readers, Uh, the internet in the United States is much more of a multilateral communication system where uh, it really depends on the contribution of users. And the role that Section 230 plays in that is it allows these platforms to come up with their own models around user content without fearing effectively company-ending liability for material that, for example, might be defamatory. Uh, A person who's defamed on social media in the United States can sue the person who wrote the defamatory post, but because of Section 230, they're probably not going to succeed in a lawsuit against the social media company. So uh, Section 230, uh, in, in in, in its liability shifting, 
has really created all of these open forums on the internet that would much more likely be very closed off or at least much more limited if it was not for Section 230. Let's now shift our focus to us as naval officers and the key differences between citizens and service members when considering the First Amendment. My name is Colonel Christopher B. Shaw, United States Marine Corps, graduated from the Naval Academy in 1994 and became an infantry officer. After that, I went to law school and became a judge advocate in the Marine Corps. Currently, I'm serving as the staff judge advocate for Marine Corps Combat Development Command. There is absolutely a difference with First Amendment freedoms. Uh, your uh, freedom of religion, your freedom of speech, your freedom of expression, your freedom of association, your freedom of assembly uh, are all abridged uh, when you raise your right hand and you join the military. And again, the idea, the reason for this abridgment is in order to maintain the discipline within the United States military in order to ensure that we are efficient at doing our job, uh, we, we have to abridge uh, certain rights. Uh, so you can't just say whatever you want to say. Uh, for certain folks uh, whose religion calls for them to wear certain clothing, uh, use um, certain uh, drugs that otherwise would be illicit, uh, to grow their hair a certain way, uh, those are at times incompatible with active duty service. And I think when we look at uh, the, the rights that people have and the amendments that people have in civilian life versus what you have in the military, really the goal is for, again, the military to be uh, lethal, for the military to be effective, uh, for the military to be disciplined. And when, um, you know, having, uh, telling someone to do something and someone talking back, someone being disrespectful, um, goes against having a disciplined force, having an efficient force. So really, again, the goal is for uh, the military to be disciplined and efficient uh, in protecting the United States, and we do that uh, by taking away some of your rights. These limitations make practical and, yes, even ethical sense. So how should a service member understand his or her role and the political process? We turn to Professor Mark Nevitt. So political campaigns were three were, you know, in a presidential election year, and the military, again, the First Amendment applies you have First Amendment protections, the right to vote, but there's an asterisk in terms of, you know, what you can and can't say. As a general matter, you, you certainly want want to register to vote in your home state, wherever you're domiciled, and I encourage you to do so. Um, I think that, uh, you know, donating money is, is also, uh, for the most part, okay, but you want to leave your name and affiliation off a donation. Um, Members of active duty should not engage in, you know, partisan political activity, and members of the armed forces, you know, should not wear uniforms during or in connection with furthering political activity, or even when there's an inference of official sponsorship, the activity uh, could be drawn. 
you know, during working hours, you want to be really careful about uh, any kind of partisan political activity. You're per se prohibited from engaging in any kind of political activity during working hours or using government equipment. And that is actually something that could be uh, charged under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I think for the political activities, political campaign season, you know, I say use your judgment. We have a long tradition of the military being a professional organization, not politicized. So whatever party you're on, Republican or Democrat, don't don't allow yourself uh, to be politicized. If in doubt, uh, don't do it. And we have this long tradition of the military being um, just a, a professional, sober-minded, serious organization. Um, and we're kind of a calm, <laughs> a little bit of an eye of the calm of the storm uh, that, that, uh, that is the political um, reality these days. So if in doubt, uh, you know, don't do it. As retired military members, even General Allen uh, was on the stage at the Democratic National Convention in 2016. As a general matter, the First Amendment and their rights to engage in political activities um, are a little broader than what, in fact, I would say significantly broader than what they would be if they were um, in the and still still active duty. Um, having said that, once you go to the retired list, <laughs> the UCMJ, there still is a mechanism <laughs> to uh, to get jurisdiction over retired military members. As a practical matter, it is extraordinarily, extraordinarily, extraordinarily rare. Um, oftentimes what happens is someone is brought back to active duty for something they committed while they were uh, a crime they committed on, on active duty. And there's a real strong military reason to do that. Members, I remember, you know, General Marshall and even maybe uh, President Eisenhower used to, before Eisenhower ran for president, used to comment that they did not vote in uh, presidential elections or elections because they didn't want to be even perceived as being uh, partisan. What areas of speech uh, is service members' speech limited in? And so I talk about that one political example. Uh, so there's going to be some limits on what service members can say politically. There's limits based on OPSEC or national security, right? You're limited in announcing when the ship is coming back home on Facebook. You can't do that. Well, you're going to be limited if there's pending litigation. That isn't something that applies to most junior officers in the fleet. You're prevented from giving the appearance of DOD endorsement of products or organizations or ideas. So again, that one ties back into the political arena. And then you're going to be limited in not expressing racist or ex extremist speech. You know, it's not a crime in America just to have opinions that are racist, and it is not a crime in America to express opinions that are racist, but it is potentially something that could find you facing discipline as a service member in the military to express those kinds of opinions or to hold those kinds of beliefs. And what you see in really all of those is an overarching concern with good order and discipline. When it comes to the limits on what we can and cannot say politically, what we care about really is civilian command and control of the military. That is what we believe in as Americans. We're not a military dictatorship, and we try to make it abundantly clear that our military chain of command is apolitical and that we will respect and follow the orders of any person appointed over us or elected above us, 
regardless of party affiliation. So that's why you're not going to be allowed to say some things that are critical of sitting leaders and why you're not going to be able to say some things that are favorable about leaders who are seeking election or re-election to try to limit that appearance that we um, we may not be fully loyal to everybody who's elected to be our leadership. Um, and the same thing when it comes to racist or extremist speech, right? That is just about as detrimental to good order and discipline as it gets. It inspires dissension in the ranks. It makes people feel not included and not a part of our team. And it makes us a less effective, less lethal fighting force. So it's just simply not tolerated. We turn back to Lieutenant Commander Jarzik and Professor Nevitt to provide detail and understanding of the key case regarding service members that determine their relationship with the First Amendment and the UCMJ. We have a case that involves an Army lieutenant who was an active duty officer at the time, and he marched in a a protest against the Vietnam War. And he was holding a sign that called President Johnson a fascist. And that army officer was prosecuted for contempt towards officials, and he lost his challenge on constitutional grounds. They're getting at the same exact thing, right? They are getting at their frustration with the war and their disagreement with our government and its policies. But because the the officer was in the military, he was not able to express himself to the same full and free extent that Mr. Cohen was. So... There's a couple cases I'll just talk about that adds a little bit of granularity. One is this case Parker versus Levy from the 1970s. And that's when an officer was court-martialed for making statements to enlisted personnel that were critical of the Vietnam War. In fact, he even told his African-American soldiers they should refuse to go to Vietnam because it was an unjust war and they would be in great bodily harm. The officer was convicted at a, at a court-martial, and he challenged his conviction on First Amendment grounds. And the Supreme Court says a lot of what we're already talking about here. The Supreme Court reaffirmed that reaffirmed the conviction and said this, this was not a valid First Amendment claim. The military uh, is by necessity a specialized society separate from civilian society. And I'll just read this quote here, which I think is also very instructive. While members of the military not excluded from the protection of, granted by the First Amendment, the different character of the military community and mission requires a different application of those protections. So you see this notion that the court is looking to the community, looking to the military's mission, and looking to how the First Amendment is applied. Uh, in this case, um, the, the officer officers convicted was upheld and those rights were not uh, protected. Um, the second one I'll just mention is an Air Force case out of 1980. It's called Brown v. Glines, where an Air Force regulation prohibited Air Force members from posting distributing material on an Air Force installation without permission of the commander. And again, this was actually upheld by the Supreme Court. Uh, a, an airman challenged this, what's called prior restraint in First Amendment jurisprudence, which basically anytime the government restricts your speech prior to even speaking, it will be strictly scrutinized or very heavily scrutinized uh, by the courts. But again, the court um, upheld this, um, the Air Force regulation, staying essentially the commanders in charge of maintaining morale, discipline, readiness. No no one can just post whatever they want on an Air Force installation's public board. There has to be some sort of oversight over that. So again, the First Amendment applies. It certainly reaffirmed that the First Amendment applies 
but the court will in fact defer to the military on many instances and how it is actually applied. How do these dynamics shift, if at all, when talking about the press? What can you say about being active duty and one's relationship with the press? So generally speaking, uh, if you're in the military and you are contacted by the press, the question is always, what should you do? And I would tell your listeners, the first person you should tell <laughs> is not CNN or Fox News or Twitter, your Twitter account, but you know, contact your public affairs office. So they are aware of likely media coverage and can provide potential assistance. Um, you know, even in the U.S. Naval Academy, faculty members and media representatives, um, faculty members must keep in mind that anytime they speak to the media, they're speaking their personal capacity, not necessarily on behalf of the United States Naval Academy or the U.S. U.S. government. So the standard practice, if you're contacted by CNN or reporter, is to first inform your chain of command. And that applies even for us here at the Naval Academy who have the great honor and privilege to, to teach here. Um, in fact, I was just contacted by the military, or rather the media, just a couple of weeks ago. I have some expertise on, on the military usage domestically. And the first thing I do is notify my chain of command and the public affairs officer because there's you want to want just common sense to let, let them know that you're being contacted. You know, no one likes to get that surprised, be surprised, but by media um, moments when someone that works for you is, is talking to them. So for sure, if you're in the military, talk to your chain of command, talk to your public affairs. Now you may feel a need to write an op-ed or a letter to the editor and, and that might be okay. And of course the first amendment applies. You can write a letter to the editor. You can write an op-ed. Um, I would make clear that, you know, you're not speaking on behalf of the U.S. military, and I recommend not using your rank and your, your affiliation. I would uh, reaffirm that you're speaking as a private as a private citizen. Even in my academic writing, even though I'm a retired Navy commander, I still have a blurb in there saying I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone. That's just a good sort of common sense practice. Um, so when you get a call from the media... Um, definitely contact your chain of command. And anytime you're writing or you're speaking to the media, you want to make clear that if the, if the military is not sending you on behalf, affirmatively on behalf of the military to speak to the media, then you're doing so in your own personal capacity. So honestly, that, those rules and regulations are so complex that your average military member should not be speaking to the press about anything really military or job related. We have PAOs, those are public affairs officers for a reason, and we have JAGs for a reason. And commanders typically do not go give a statement to the press without running that statement by both of those advisors to make sure you're squared with all of the rules that limit, you know, what we can say in terms of potential endorsement or opening ourselves up to potential litigation or potential OPSEC issues. There are just so many reasons why uh, your average service member shouldn't be talking about their views on military policy. That said, you can express your opinions uh, based on your expertise in certain areas. I find myself doing this quite often lately with some of the issues that have uh, emerged in the public co consciousness recently. Um, there's the murder of specialist Vanessa Guillen, uh, an army specialist who um, there have been some real challenges 
to the investigation of her case. And I'm not going to opine one way or the other. I think there's a lot of questions that we need answered there. But anytime I speak about that case in my expertise as a JAG, and in particular in my um, coming off of a victim's legal counsel tour, where the last three years of my life, I did nothing but represent victims of sexual assault, I have to couch that opinion with, you know, this is my own personal opinion and not that of the DOD or the DON. So when you're speaking on social media um, and you are opining in a way that is influenced or impacted by your service, or if your page is very, very much identifying you as a service member, you have an obligation to make it clear that what you're saying are, are your own personal views and not the DOD, DON. That's the risk with going to like the New York Times or um, you know any other media outlet is that they're not going to give you that opportunity to say that tagline, hey, these are my own personal views. And it's going to start to look like that is the official position of the United States Navy. So interacting with the press about official stuff, really go talk to a PAO or a JAG before you do that kind of thing. If it's man on the street interview, hey, how excited are you to be back in, in port after 10 months away? Sure, go go right on ahead, knock yourself out. You're not going to get in trouble there. Um, but anything policy related, yeah, go talk to an expert before you make that statement. We understand the digital age opens new doors and questions about the First Amendment. Can you discuss the relationship between the UCMJ and social media? So social media and the limits on what service members can and cannot say is something that the military is really trying to catch up on. So kind of some left and right limits based in, in common sense on those instructions and, and kind of plainly put. You cannot say on Facebook that so-and-so, such-and-such official sucks or worse. We have Article 88 out there, which prevents contempt towards officials. So you can't use personally contemptuous language about certain high-ranking officials, you know, the president, the vice president, congressman. That personally contemptuous language is like name-calling type stuff or saying someone sucks. You can say, I disagree with President Trump about X. Um, again, if you're starting to encroach in that related to the military mission side of things, I would really couch hey, this is my own personal opinion and, and be very respectful about it, but you are allowed to disagree. You just can't call names. Incidentally, that rule, Article 88, only applies to officers. It does not in, apply to enlisted personnel. And some of that is a respect for the, the importance of the First Amendment. The military kind of recognized and Congress recognized in legislating Article 88 that we probably couldn't tell the entire DOD, every active duty military person, that they can't um, talk crap about elected officials. So they really limited it to those people that they thought it was most important to keep in line for good order and discipline. And that was the officer corps by virtue of the, quote, special repose placed in officers. So that one's no good. You also can't say, I'm voting for X and you should too. You are allowed to vote as a service member. You're allowed to donate money to a campaign. You can follow officials who support Facebook pages or you know their Twitter accounts, whatever you like there. But what you can't do is attempt to persuade other people to vote in a certain way. That runs um, afoul of, of endorsing and trying to solicit votes for a partisan candidate, and that's not going to be allowed. As naval officers, we understand we have certain rights that must be abridged. 
We understand that while we lose some of those guarantees provided in the First Amendment, we gain different rights private citizens do not. Above all else, it remains essential to understand how, why, and for what we make those sacrifices. Colonel Christopher Shaw, the oath of office for an officer in the military is significant because we are actually pledging our faith and our obedience to a concept. We are not pledging our, our faith and obedience to a person, not to an office, uh, but to really a concept. And that concept is enshrined in the United States Constitution, which talks about all men being created equal and that the law is higher than man. And really, this was an experiment, uh, an experiment that's lasted over 200 years at this point. And this experiment has consistently widened uh, the view of equal rights. Uh, so at first, it talked to rights of men that were white and that were property owners. It was further expanded uh, to all men, and now it's been expanded to all women, and it's even been expanded to uh, people of different sexual orientation. Ultimately, what this means is that we are beholden to the laws that the people of the United States ultimately create, and they create it by electing officials, and those officials uh, then create the laws that we follow. So it's quite critical for us to understand that we garner our authority not from any person, one person, not from any one office, uh, but we garner our authority from the laws that govern the United States and the ultimate law, which is the Constitution. And that puts law and Constitution over individual men and women. Thanks for listening to the Bill of Rights podcast from the Stockdale Center at the United States Naval Academy. This is a series of presentations that covers the interconnections between the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and how the Uniform Code of Military Justice relates to each other. Tune in for the rest of the series covering freedoms, criminal procedure, courts, trials, and enumerated rights, among other things. You raised your hand in an oath to the Constitution the first day you got here. Make sure you know what it means. These podcasts are brought to you by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. I'm Michael Sears, the Director of Leadership Innovation, and I'm with my partner, Ensign Aiden Riley. We wrote, edited, and produced this series. would also like to thank our guests, Professor Mark Nevitt, Professor Jeff McCreese, Professor Mary DeCritico, Professor Brielle Harbin, Professor David Lunan, Professor Mitt Regan, Professor Jeff Kossif, Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth Jarzik, and Colonel Christopher Shaw, United States Marine Corps. Music by Footloose by Kenny Loggins. Music from the movie Footloose. 
Luigi Baccarini, Night Music of the Streets of Madrid, Passe Cale. Music from Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. The U.S. Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. Words by James Madison and the 55 founding fathers who started this conversation. And we are happy they did. <laughs>